Well, last night we talked about the kingdom, that God never abandoned his purpose to have people that he created exercise his authority on this earth. Even after man sinned, he set up a nation to demonstrate what a nation looked like whose God is the Lord. And now he wants a group of people, since he redeemed us from selfishness, which is another word for sin, uh, he's made it possible for us to demonstrate the ideal society before it was necessary to have violence and force to take care of evil and all of that, to demonstrate the ideals of that original uh, purpose that he had for man. Uh, and it's just a wonderful blessing to be part of that kingdom. In 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson gave a speech at the Ohio University stating his goal as president to create a great society. How many remember that time in the 60s? <laughs> okay. He passed the civil, he, he was instrumental in helping to pass the civil rights bill, which would ban all racial discrimination. That was the famous uh, civil rights bill of 1964. He also instigated the Economic Opportunity Act to eliminate poverty. He declared a war on poverty. He also established the Volunteers in Service to America to raise the level of American education. So he was dealing with discrimination, poverty, and education, hoping to create a great society. But four years later, in 1968, it was pretty obvious that his hopes of leaving a legacy of domestic reform was probably not going to happen the way he had hoped it would. Governments of the world try to use external forces to bring about the ideals that we talk about in relation to the kingdom. No poor people, people treated justly, a well-educated group of people. Yeah, that's what society should be, and the world tries to create that. Well, 2,000 years earlier, Jesus also inaugurated a great society. He called it the kingdom of God. But he based his great society on internal changes, not external force. His, his plan for this kingdom <laughs> were outrageously counterintuitive. We would expect the opposite of what he said. All right? Right action is not intuitive. It doesn't make sense to forgive your enemy. It doesn't make sense to give your extra money away. It doesn't make sense to always tell the truth. It doesn't make sense to turn the other cheek. It doesn't make sense to stay in an unhappy marriage. I have many atheists who say to me, I don't need Jesus. I know how to be good. And I said, yes, until the rubber hits the road. And then when you've got to fudge a little on the truth, you will. When marriage gets really difficult, you'll run. You might know how to be good, but you don't have the strength to carry it completely through to do what you know you should do. Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not within himself to direct his steps, Jeremiah 10, 23. The world believes to have a strong kingdom, you must build up its wealth, it, it must build up its wealth and its military power. That's their idea of a strong kingdom. But God said to the kings of Israel, don't multiply silver and gold, don't multiply horses, trust me. And Jesus based his kingdom on a radically transformed character, and that's what we want to talk about tonight. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 5? <clears throat> I used to study the Sermon on the Mount, and I used to wonder why 
it didn't begin with the new birth. Did you ever wonder that? Why doesn't it talk about the new birth at the beginning? We all say, Jesus said in uh, John chapter 3, you can't even see the kingdom of God without a new birth, and you certainly can't enter the kingdom of God without a new birth, and yet he gives this sermon, and there's nothing said about the new birth. Maybe that never puzzled you, but it puzzled me for years. And then I realized that's exactly what he starts with. He starts with a blow-by-blow description of what happens in the life when a man is born again. The Beatitudes are a practical definition of what the new birth looks like. Now, I believe the new birth starts with the very first one, okay? Um, So let's start with the beginning here. The first word here is blessed, okay? This is not a statement or a description of the quality of life. It is rather an explanation saying, Congratulations if you're poor in spirit, if you're, if you're mourning for the right things. Congratulations. You're in a good situation. You're well poised to experience the best. You're to be envied. In fact, uh, that's sort of in the meaning of the word if you study it. To be envied are the poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are meek and all of these qualities which the world does not look at as something to envy at all. Now, there's a difference between happiness and joy. I want to get this clear. Our world is looking for happiness. I want you to take a look at the root meaning, or the root part of happiness. It, it has this word in it. Does anybody know what that word is? Hap. It's an old English word we don't use. It was Ruth's hap to glean in Boaz's field. It's in the Bible. That's that's the word that's used. So what are we talking about when we're talking about happiness? Happenstance, circumstance. Happiness is based on circumstances. And that's what the world's looking for. I went to Dr. Hess, who was a German Baptist doctor. He was my personal doctor. And I said, Dr. Hess, what do you think of this diagnosis that's given to every other person's having problems that he's bipolar? And he laughed at me. And he said, John, we're all bipolar. When our circumstances are to our liking, our emotions go up. And when our circumstances are not to our liking, they go down. We are all bipolar, up and down on our circumstances. And that's why the world is unhappy most of the time, because they try to control their circumstances, to have enough money, to have enough friends, to have enough people supporting them, to have enough people on their side, to have enough military power. Try to get everything so that you, your life insurance can take care of all your problems. They try to arrange circumstances so they can be happy. Their circumstances are to their liking. But joy has nothing to do with circumstances. And that's what Jesus said. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain with you and that your joy might be full. When a man can stand at the stake and sing, certainly his joy has nothing to do with his circumstances. So what are we talking about when we talk about joy? What are we talking about when we talk about to be envied? It means to have that sense of well-being that you are in harmony with the God of the universe, no matter what's happening to you, and that all is well between you and God, and that you can trust him for whatever happens. That deep, settled sense of security in Christ, that is where joy is found. 
And it cannot be shaken by sorrow, pain, loss, or grief. It has nothing to do with circumstances. It's all about whether we have a relationship that gives us a trusting sense of well-being regardless of what our circumstances are. Happiness, is, happiness vanishes with a change in fortune, a collapse of health, a failure of plans, disappointed ambitions, a ruined bank account, some tremendous loss, and happiness goes down the drain. So tonight, we want to look at these uh, wonderful statements. Jesus is showing us the characteristics that begin to emerge with the new birth. So the first thing we want to talk about is losing to win. The first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he mean by poor in spirit? I first of all call your attention to the word poor. There are two words in the Greek for poor, they say. I have to trust what they say. I don't know Greek. Well, I tell people I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew. The little Greek runs a restaurant. The little Hebrew runs a clothing store. Uh, but that's all the little Greek and Hebrew I have. So I have to trust what other people say. And they say that the word poor has two meanings. The one meaning is a working man who has enough but doesn't have anything extra. And the other word means a person who has nothing and is in abject poverty, just hopeless poverty. And they say that's the word that's used here, all right? A sense of what Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Now, we think we can do a little bit without Jesus, but he said, without me, you can do nothing. And he says the person who comes to that realization is in a good situation, and he is to be complimented. We sing in the song, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. That's the man who is poor in spirit. And I told you last night that it's the opposite of what most people are. We talked about all those self words, and we won't talk about that tonight. This is self-renunciation. It's what I pictured last night. And I just noticed <laughs> here this evening, I accidentally drew this one with a little bit of a slope because self eventually slides off the throne. Uh, I thought that was interesting that I accidentally drew this with a slope. Anyway, it's when we put self on the cross and we put Christ on the throne. It means we come to Jesus and we say, look, I am totally dependent on you. You speak the word and I'll do it. You teach me and I will learn. It's the stance of a learner. You know, Louis Pasteur was the person who discovered the germ theory. Before Louis Pasteur, when people got sick, they assumed the planets were lined up wrong or there was something wrong with the atmosphere or there was some superstitious happening that caused them to be sick. They didn't have any concept that there was cause and effect with sickness. But Louis Pasteur looked through a microscope and he saw these little things and it dawned on him, that's what's causing sickness, those little pathogens. There's, there's little things we can't see with our eyes that it's in the, in the water and saliva and whatever. And... Uh, we need to be careful. So he went to the doctors and he said, now, in your hospitals, one-third of your people are dying, and I will tell you why most of them are dying, because you're going from one person to another examining without washing your hands, and you're carrying these little things. Look here through my microscope. They wouldn't believe him. You know why? Because he was not a doctor. He was a chemist. And they said, you're not a doctor. We don't have to listen to you. What do you know? You're a chemist. We're doctors. We know. And so they kept on doing the examination with unwashed hands, and people kept dying. And that's the problem. 
The only way those doctors could have learned is if they would have just completely wiped their mind of their, all their preconceived ideas, all of their biases, all of the things they thought they knew and were willing to sit down before the facts and face them and deal with them and be realistic. Amen. And that's what we have to do with life. I told you it's counterintuitive to forgive. My children would say to me, you don't know what he did to me. And I would say, well, that's what forgiveness is. It's what he did to you and what you do with it. And so we have to go to Jesus and he says, give to him, Hudson Taylor, give to him that asketh of thee and would he, of him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. I forgot to say he thought of that verse when that poor man came to him and he gave him all his money that he had in his pocket. And I'm just giving that as an example. But what we do is we go to that verse and say, well, Jesus couldn't possibly mean that. <laughs> and so then we begin to do what we do. And, and he's saying, no, no, no. Blessed is the man who sits down before the facts like Louis Pasteur did and allows himself to be taught and allows himself to learn. Because as human beings, we have almost everything to unlearn and we have everything to learn about the kingdom. All right? So that's how we enter the kingdom. That's the new birth right there. Pictured on the board. Self on the cross, Christ on the throne, and self on the cross in every decision, ideally. We don't get that done perfectly, and, and Jesus understands that, and we'll talk about that somewhere along the line. Okay. Well, once we have done that, we begin to see things realistically. We begin to see ourselves. We're not the good people we thought we were. We begin to see there are all kinds of selfish things in our lives, and they cause us grief. We begin to see the world. It's not a playground. It's a battlefield, and people are dying, and there's tragedy there, and that makes us sad. We look at God, and he's not some jolly grandfather. He's a holy God that cannot tolerate sin, and so we see God, the world, and ourselves in our eyes are open when we surrender and become born again. And so we go through life with carrying a certain amount of sadness. Jesus, he is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. And the favorite, the well-known verse, Jesus wept. The word for mourn here, they say, again, is the strongest Greek term that you could get. It's the grief that Jacob had whenever he was mourning his son Joseph, who he thought was dead. It's a passionate lament for a dead loved one. That's the, that's the level of this mourning. We come to a bitter sorrow for sin in our own lives and in the lives of the people around us, and the tragedy that represents. Versus the world, who laughs at the world's tragedies. Look at a, look at a, a, a typical uh, comedy show on TV. I know we don't have TVs, but I've been, been in places sometimes where they had one of those playing. They're laughing at fathers, they're laughing at preachers, they're laughing at everything they should be crying about. That's the world. Those things aren't funny to us anymore. In fact, when I see one of those talk shows where they're laughing at this stuff, I, to me, it, it's, it causes me to be very unhappy because it is so wrong. The poem says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way. 
but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. The story is told of a reporter who was visiting an old folks' home, and he met three very old-looking men. The reporter asked the first one what was the secret of his long life. He replied that he'd never smoked, he'd never drank, he never caroused. He was happily married to the same woman for 60 years. The reporter asked him how old he was, and he said he was 96. Then he turned to the next man who looked even older, and he asked him what his secret for a long life was. And he said, well, I smoked a little, I drank a little, I caroused a little, and my first wife divorced me, so I married a second. We've been married for 43 years. And the reporter asked him how old he was, and he said he was 66. Then the reporter turned to the next person who looked even older and asked him what the secret of his long life was. And he said, I smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. I drank two-fifths of old overhauled pure rye whiskey every day. I caroused to the early days, hours of the morning, six days a week, and I've never been married. The reporter asked him how old he was, and he said 17. That's the world. I once read of a boy who committed suicide, and he left a note. He's 21 years old. He left a note, and he said, died of old age at 21. That's what happens to the people who laugh at the things that the Christian mourns about. A difficult, painful experience can quickly turn a happy-go-lucky youth into a sensible, conscientious, other-seeking person. Sorrow deepens and matures our lives. And so Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They will see real growth of character. They will relate to the situations that they see around them in a way that helps those people to move in the right direction, and they will see some good results, and that will be a blessing. They'll begin to relate realistically to themselves, to the world around them, and they'll begin to see things change in the right direction, and that will be a blessing. Sam Hadley was a drunk who ended up on the Bowery in New York. How many have ever been to the Bowery? He went into their program and got converted and eventually became the director of the Bowery Mission. One day, Charles Alexander, who was the singer for Billy Sunday, was there to sing in one of their Sunday evening services. And after the service, he said to Sam Hadley, would you take me on a tour of the Bowery? And Sam Hadley did. Took him to the flop houses, to the house of prostitution, seeing people lying on the street in their own vomit and all the ugliness of the Bowery. And then they came back to the mission. And uh, Charles Alexander turned the corner to meet his bus. And after he turned the corner, he thought he heard somebody crying. And so he walked back around the building, and there was Sam Hadley with his head against a lamppost, just sobbing out his heart. Oh, God, the sin of this city breaks my heart. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about people who become realistic. That's really what he's talking about. And the picture they see is not a pretty picture, and they're beginning to relate to life realistically. They're beginning to deal with their own sin and with the tragedy of the sin all around them. All right? <clears throat> the cross shows us the horror of what sin can do. Okay? Oh, the bliss of a man whose heart is broken for the world's suffering and for his own sin. For out of his sorrow, he will find the joy of God. That's a quote that I got somewhere. So, 
He's a person who is destitute in spirit. He knows he is totally dependent on God. He's ready to listen to every word God says. He's ready to be taught. He's ready to change. He's ready to lay down his biases and his selfishness and take up the way of Christ wholeheartedly and keep himself on the cross and keep Christ on the throne. The next thing we might meet is that he's a meek person. Now, meek, they say, is the Greek for an animal that has been domesticated. It's anger. It's all the energy of anger on a leash. It's moved to do something about the wrong, but it's under control. It's not harsh. It's now self-assertive. It's not controlling. I say to people, we have things to say to people that are going to make them very angry. We have things to say to people that are going to be very hurtful. But Christians put a premium on finding a way to say it that is not a hurtful way of saying it. If I have to tell somebody that their divorce and remarriage is not acceptable to God, I want to say that in the kindest way I possibly can. It will hurt, but I will try not to say it in a hurtful way. I will try not to put the person down. There's a tract on the subject that people recommend that you hand out. I read the tract and I said, if I were a divorced and remarried person, the way this man says this is very condescending. And I don't, think it, I don't think it can be read without the person being unnecessarily hurt. The person who is meek is gentle in strength. That's the point I want to make. Jesus said we are to be blameless and harmless as doves. I said we will say things that hurt. We will say things that will get us persecuted and maybe even put to death. But let it not be said that we said them in a hurtful way or that we treated people hurtfully. I can afford to do good to the person who wrongs me and wait for God to take care of the wrong. The Bible says, give place to wrath. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Psalm 37.3 says, trust in the Lord. Who's, can you tell me what comes after that? Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and he will bring it to pass. He will bring forth thy righteousness as the noonday, it says. So if somebody needs to be corrected, somebody has done you wrong, trust in the Lord and do good. Be meek. Okay? Now this is not possible unless a person is poor in spirit and really does trust God. Joseph did what he did because he said over and over again, I fear God. That was, the controlling, that was the controlling principle of Joseph's life. I fear God. I won't do this because I fear God. I'm going to put you all in prison. And then the next morning he says, no, no, I'm going to let you all go home except one because I fear God. I want to treat you right because I fear God. Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. He led a difficult multitude for 40 years. But he had to learn to be meek by a tremendous failure when he used lethal force. He had to learn that was wrong. Okay? And he had to go to the desert for 40 years of education. The meek person knows he doesn't have to manipulate people. He has to, doesn't have to do any politicking. He doesn't have to lash out at anybody. He hasn't, doesn't need to defame or gossip about people. He doesn't need to crawl off wrapped in his own miserable tatters of self-pity. He doesn't need to do any of those things that people use to control other people and hurt other people to get back at them. 
He can do good, he can be meek, he can be gentle, he can be kind and trust God to take care of the situation. And the interesting thing is with every one of these blessed uh, characteristics, there's a promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the mourn, they shall be comforted. They will begin to see some blessed results from their response to sin. Blessed are the meek, Finish it. They shall inherit the earth. That's the biggest promise of all in all of this. You'd think the meek person was the person you'd walk over. He'd be a floor mat. Everybody take advantage of him. But it's the very opposite. It says this person will have the most authority of anybody on the earth. And it's true. The early Christians were persecuted. The Roman government, the Jews, tried to obliterate the Christian church before it ever began. And yet it won the heart of the Roman Empire within 200 years without lifting a sword. It was meek. People watched these people being burned at the stake. They watched them risking their lives. They watched them serving in ways that were not humanly explainable. They watched them being kind when they were being mistreated. And they said, what is this? And then they got the explanation. This is the power of the resurrection. And they said, we want that too. Or the early Anabaptists. The Anabaptists stood for something that nobody stood for in their day. Nobody stood for separation of church and state. The reformers were state church people and continued to use the state to persecute the people who disagreed with them. Martin Luther, Zwingli, uh, Calvin. The only voice of religious freedom and freedom of conscience and and, uh, non-resistance and separation of church and state and voluntary church membership and adult baptism was the Anabaptists. And Leonard Verdine wrote a book trying to demonstrate that it was because of that witness that all of the freedoms of Western civilization were won. But how were they won? They were won at the stake. They were won at the drownings. They were won at the beheadings. There's a power here that is greater than any other power, the power of suffering love. And he says, they shall inherit the earth. It's like a snake who finds a file in the grass. And that snake picks up that metal file and he decides he's gonna destroy it. So he starts chewing on it. And then he looks at it and he sees white dust. Ah, he's making progress. So he chews on it some more. And he sees more white dust and he chews on it. And then he begins to see red. And he realizes he's not destroying the file. He's destroying himself. And that's what happens when people try to destroy the meek. They may destroy some individuals, but they will not destroy the cause. And they will eventually realize that they have not destroyed the people. They've destroyed themselves. Somebody has said, beware of the terrible meek. (laughs) Beware of the terrible meek. Don't you fight with him. You will only get harm to yourself. Now, this is not possible unless God controls. But the meek person can afford to do good and wait. He's on the side of the God of the universe. Barclay says it this way. I'm sorry, E. Stanley Jones, one of my favorite authors, says it this way. There is a beyondness in the Sermon on the Mount that startles and appalls the legalistic mind. It sees no limit to duty. The first mile does not suffice. He will go too. The coat is not enough. 
he will give the cloak also. To love friends is not enough. He will love his enemies too. Come to that, the Sermon on the Mount, with a legalistic mind, and it is impossible and absurd. Come to it with the mind of a lover and nothing else is possible. The lover's attitude is not one of duty, but one of privilege. Here's the key to the Sermon on the Mount. We mistake it entirely if we look at it as the chart of the Christian's duty rather than the charter of the Christian's liberty. His liberty is to go beyond, to do the thing that love impels and not merely the thing that duty compels. Jones summarizes it this way. The renounced in spirit gained the kingdom of heaven. The mourners gained kingdom of inner comfort and the meek gained the earth. So the world above, the world within, and the world around belong to this man. Wanting nothing, he inherits everything. It's just a beautiful statement. Okay. I tell my charismatic friends, you want to see miracles? Obey the Sermon on the Mount. It will require miracles. It requires a miracle to stay in a difficult marriage. It requires a miracle to give when you want to keep. It requires a miracle to tell the truth when telling the truth is going to get you into trouble. It requires a miracle to obey Jesus. And the Christian is in that blessed position. And we can say, congratulations, you're in a good position. You're poised to experience all that the God of the universe has to give. So let's go to the next one. The next one is interesting. I look at these next three as the path to perfection. Did you know that getting to heaven is not what we are called to focus upon? I want you to look at the end of chapter 5. Look at the end of chapter 5. Be ye therefore perfect. It's a command to be perfect. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Somebody has observed that that the... uh, goal of getting to heaven or heaven as as a part of our experience is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. 12 times in the whole New Testament, there's something said about us getting to heaven at the end. And I don't want you to walk away from this meeting saying that's not important. That is of ultimate importance, of course. But somebody said, and I never counted this, I'm just going by somebody else, that the concept of being perfect is found 33 times in the New Testament. Now, you maybe never heard this promoted before because all of us say, well, nobody's perfect and, and uh, that, that's an unreasonable, but the Bible says it. Present every man perfect in Christ. That was Paul's passion, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Paul says he was apprehended to, uh, to, to represent Christ. He said, I haven't attained it, but I'm pressing toward it. That's my goal. My goal is to be like Jesus, to be perfect. Jesus told the rich young ruler, if thou wilt be perfect, go do this. Luke 6.40 says the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. I'm trying to give you some of these references in the New Testament. Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 13 talk about coming unto a perfect man as a church. 1 Peter 1.16 says, be ye holy for I am holy. So God is looking for us to be pressing toward perfection. Now, like Paul, we will never completely get there, but God loves the passion of the pursuit. (laughs) 
it's interesting, but human beings all try to act as if they're good people. Most people want to be good. They tell me on the phone all the time, I know how to be good, I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person, I'm kind to people, I know how to treat people. Why is everybody haunted with this idea of being good? Everybody seems to be haunted by the wanting to be good people. Why? Well, it's because God put that there in our hearts. That's what he wants us to be, perfect people. He wants us in that pursuit. Now, the problem is most people want to be good to a certain extent, especially the part which other people see. (laughs) But they're not interested in being absolutely good, absolutely perfect, regardless what anybody else does or regardless what the circumstances are. They say the word for hunger here. There again, they say there are two words in the Greek for hunger. The one means to have just a piece of something to want just a piece of bread. The other hunger is the hunger for the whole loaf. You want the whole thing. And they say that's the word here, okay? The hunger and thirst as someone who is starving and dying for complete righteousness. There's a story of McKinley's mother who was, when she was told that he became president of the United, he was elected president of the United States, they say, what do you think? And she said, oh my dear, I was hoping that he would be a minister of the gospel, and now he's just the president of the United States. Do we really see the ideals of Christ's kingdom with a passion to possess and exemplify those? William Law, how many have ever read his book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life? Anybody read that? You remember the second chapter in that book? You're just as holy as you want to be. He said, it's all a matter of spiritual intent. Don't look at a person who lives an exemplary life and say, well, he just has a personality. I I have a personality that just isn't that way. No, don't ever say that. He says, you're just as holy as you want to be. It's a matter of intent. So if you have a passion for righteousness, you will become more and more righteous. And God loves that pursuit. It's a little bit like David didn't get to build the temple, but God said, David, I'm really happy you wanted to do it. See, God looks at the passion. God looks at the pursuit. God looks at the desire, and he credits that as perfection, even though we haven't completely attained it. In fact, I like the example of David. David says, I want to build the temple, and God said, David, you're not going to build the temple, but I want to ask you a question, David. Did I ever tell you I wanted a temple? And if you look in the laws that were given, there's not any plans for a temple at all. He gave them plans for a tabernacle, and God was perfectly happy to dwell in that tabernacle. And so he said to David, in essence, I never asked for a temple. But David, I am so happy you wanted to build one for me, even though you never got it built, and I'm not going to let you build it. But just the desire to build it makes me so happy that instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And there's where he made David the promise that he would always have somebody from his family seated on the throne of Israel. God loves this passionate intent for perfection and the pursuit, even though we never completely arrive. I like the song in our hymnal, this hymnal, 
I want a principle within. Do you folks sing that one? I want a principle. Turn to 697. Folks, what I'm talking to you about is the normal Christian life for a person who's been born again. And I'm sorry, there are many people who claim the new birth and make a huge issue about being born again that don't seem to be concerned about any of these qualities. And I can't be the judge. All I can say is I'm not seeing any evidence, according to this passage, that it ever really happened. I want a principle within, a watchful, godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it even come close to me. Help me the first approach to feel a pride or wrong desire, to catch the wandering of my will and quench that fire before it ever gets started. From thee that I no more may stray, no more thy goodness grieve. Grant me the filial, that's the relationship between a son and a father. Grant me the filial all, I pray, the tender conscience give. Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is not, and keep it still awake. Don't let me go to sleep and fall into sin. Almighty God of truth and love, to thee thy power impart. The burden from my soul remove, the hardness from my heart. Oh, may the least omission pain my reawakened soul and drive me to that grace again, which makes the wounded whole. My, that's a passion for holiness if I ever saw it expressed. And there's a verse I didn't even put in here that's even more uh, radical than that. It talks about, uh, help me to mourn over the minutest fault with exquisite distress. <laughs> and I thought I better not put that in. I'm not sure our people are quite ready for that level of passion for holiness. But did you see the promise? What's the promise with this one? What time is it getting to be? Oh, we're here some time. What's the promise here? Well, look. Somebody say it. He will be filled. Go home and look that up in your strong skin cordons. The word is gorged. What does the word gorged mean? Why you're a quiet audience? What does the word gorged mean? Stuffed. More than enough. More than satisfied. Well, why? Because that's what we were made for. We were made to be righteous. We weren't made to sin. Sin doesn't fit. Constitutionally, we weren't made for sin. People who don't have things right in their life, they break down with depression and nerve problems and, and all kinds of disruption even to their physical body. Dr. Hess, the German Baptist doctor I talked about, told Clarence Fritz, my friend one time, 80% of the people come into my office, and they were almost all plain people, 80% of the people come into my office are not sick because of any pathogen. They're sick because they're depressed, they're overworked, they're worried when they shouldn't be. They've stressed themselves so that their immune system goes down and then they get sick. Physically, we can't handle the things that we were not made for. It's like saying, I have this little science experiment I want to do and I just need a handful of stone dust. I'm not going to go to try to purchase any. That's ridiculous. I'll just go out here to the driveway and I'll pick up some stones and I'll come in and turn on the blender and I'll put the stones in and I'll make me a handful of stone dust. Really? What's going to happen? 
you're not going to make any stone dust, and you're not going to have any blender. <laughs> the blender wasn't made for to grind stones, and your body was not made to ingest sin. It wasn't made for it, even physically. You were made for righteousness. You were made to love. You were made to forgive. You were made to be generous. You were made to do all the things we're talking about. And when you do those, you are more than satisfied because your body is experiencing and your soul and your mind and your emotions and everything are experiencing exactly what you were made to do. Am I making any sense? That's tremendous. But some people are like a man who buys a new hay baler and he says, the first project I need is to get that scrap iron pile into bales. So he pulls the baler up to the scrap iron pile and tries to bale it. Well, it won't. <laughs> you get the picture? That's what most people are doing with their lives. They're trying to ingest and use things they were never made to, even physically, constitutionally, were not made for it. And so we break down. The next thing in this, this passion for perfection is a propensity for pity. Notice the next one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I have defined mercy as the ability to get inside, get inside another person's skin until you can see things with his eyes, think things with his mind, and feel things with his feelings. When people get under your skin, you need to get under theirs and find out what makes them tick and begin to tick along with them. Many righteous people are not merciful. And righteousness, untempered by mercy, is hard, unlovely, and sour-faced. The story is told of a committee at a train station to meet the new pastor who they had never met, and they weren't quite sure what he would look like. And then they saw a sour-faced individual standing over there, and they went over and said, I guess you're our new pastor. He said, no, I just have a problem with my stomach. <laughs> That's what righteousness looks like without mercy. The word sympathy has the word sense, which is to mean uh, to synthesize, to bring things together. And the pathy, we have it in all these medical terms, it means an experience or something that you suffer. So sympathy means to suffer together. That's what it means. And Jesus called it bowels of compassion. I remember as a young boy, I thought that's pretty earthy language to have in the Bible, bowels of compassion. But that's exactly what it means. If you look up that word bowels, it means the, your digestive system. How many have ever been so worried about something your whole digestive system was upset? How many have ever had that kind of anxiety? That's the feeling you have toward any person who's suffering. You identify to that extent that it actually affects you physically. God is rich in mercy. He loves mercy. He didn't send his son to condemn the world. His purpose was that all men would be saved. A person who's merciful wants to make life as easy as possible for others. That doesn't mean he overlooks sin. That doesn't mean he doesn't talk realistically about things that don't, people don't want to hear. But he wants to make that just, he wants to make people suffer as little as possible. He's quick to forgive. He's quick to share his resources. He's slow to criticize. He never condemns anybody. Did you know that? I want you to look at that word, that part of the word. Do you see what it actually says? Do you see where you could change one letter? 
when you condemn, you put other people down. The Christian never does that. He may have to say hard things. He may have to say things people don't appreciate, but he doesn't demean anybody. He doesn't put people down. Jesus did not come to condemn. He came that all the world would be redeemed. And Christians should discriminate and decide what's right and wrong, and they should tell people things that help them to understand that and help them to get their life in line with what's right. They should do all of that, but they do it in a way that they're not putting people down personally. They're merciful. John the Baptist said, he will thoroughly purge his floor and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But he had to realize, no, no, no. Behold the Lamb of God that doesn't destroy people who are evil, but he takes away the sin of the world. He had to learn that, that Jesus had a different way of dealing with evil than what he thought he was going to have. John and James asked to call down fire from heaven, and Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man came not to destroy man's lives, but to save them. Righteousness and mercy must walk together. Righteousness is beautiful when a tear of mercy glistens upon it, somebody says. But mercy also needs righteousness with it, or else it becomes mushy and undisciplined and loose, and it becomes a false liberty. So mercy and righteousness must walk together. We must declare righteousness, but we must do it with mercy in our hearts for everyone. How many of you read, how many have ever read The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare? Raise your hands high so I can see them. Well, those of you who don't know the story, the story is a, a story about a man by the name of Antonio who had this friend who was getting married. Antonio was a man who owned a bunch of ships. He was a merchant. He was wealthy. And his friend was getting married, and he was going to, uh, he wanted to buy a wedding gift. But he had just equipped his ships and sent them to sea, and although he was wealthy, he was cash poor, he didn't have the money to buy the gift. So he goes to Shylock, the Jew, who loaned money. He was a loan, a, a loan shark, and asked him for this loan. And Shylock was very happy to give him the loan. And, and then just as sort of a jest, he said to him, he said, of course, if the loan's not paid back, I will require a pound of your flesh. And then he laughed, and, and Antonio thought it was a joke. But then Antonio, when it came time to pay back the loan, found that his ships had perished at sea. And he not only was cash poor, he was destitute, and he could not pay back the loan. So he goes to Antonio, he goes to Shylock, to ask him to forgive him for the death of Shylock, he realizes then it was not a joke. Shylock envied him for his wealth, hated him, and wanted to destroy him, and this was his chance. So he took it to court. The judge looked at it, and he said, Antonio, I'm sorry, that's what it says. But he pled with Shylock to have mercy and to forgive the debt, and Shylock said, I, I insist that this, law, this uh, edict be executed. And everybody in the courtroom is pleading with Shylock. And he's hard-hearted. And in walks this lawyer and says, could I see this contract? Oh, Shylock, yeah. It says you may have a pound of, Antonio, of Antonio's flesh. But it doesn't say that you can have any of his blood. So if you shed any of his blood while you're getting your pound of flesh, you will forfeit your own life. It says you may have a pound of his flesh, but it doesn't say you can have his life. So if he dies under your knife, you die. And then Shylock is pleading for mercy. And then the lawyer says this. This is the famous quality of mercy speech. And I told you all that because I want to read you this. 
The quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throne monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute of awe and majesty, wherein does sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above the sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. And here's the quotable line. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. And then, of course, Antonio finds out that the lawyer was his wife. And she's disguised herself and disguised her voice for this occasion. He also finds out that his ships didn't perish at sea and that his wealth was not perished. And the story all turns out and everybody lives happily ever after. But it's that wonderful uh, quality of mercy speech that I often think about. Or we could think about the experience of Sundar Singh. How many of you have ever heard of Sundar Singh? He was the famous preacher in, in uh, uh, there are all kinds of stories about Sundar Singh. He was an outstanding Christian uh, a teacher in India. Well, the, the true story is told that he one time wanted to go over the Himalaya Mount, one of the ranges, to preach to people in another village. He started out with a pastor friend, and they didn't calculate the weather, and a, a storm came up, and they were at risk of freezing to death. And then they came upon a form lying in the snow. And Sundar Singh went down with his ear and he said, this man is still breathing, he's still alive, we have to pick him up and take us with him. And his, his companion said, if we do that, we're, both gonna, we're all going to die, we can't do this. So he went on by himself and Sundar Singh picked up the man, put the man over his shoulder and trudged up the mountain by himself. And of course, he got hotter and hotter and the body that he was carrying got warmer and warmer and pretty soon the man was walking beside him up the mountain. And then they came, became, they came upon another form, frozen in the snow. And it was the man that had walked on by himself. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And the last one we want to look at tonight, preparedness for purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those other qualities finally bring us to this, the person who has completely surrendered to Christ, the person who's being realistic about his sins and the sins around him, the person who has conquered his anger and has brought it under control and is able to use that energy for something constructive, the person who hungers and thirsts, he wants nothing more in the world than to be right in every circumstance. The person who is merciful has finally come to the point where he can understand and see God. You see, we see what we're prepared to see. Did you know that? I have a friend, Roman J. Miller, who was the head of the science department at Eastern Mennonite University. You ought to go with him on a walk through the woods sometime. When I go through, through the woods, I enjoy the flowers, I enjoy the smells and the trees. And what. But if you go on a walk with Roman J., he will begin to show you things you never saw before. He'll tell you what those plants are worth medicinally. He will tell you what kind of trees and the characteristics, and he'll tell you all kinds of things that you don't know. Why? Because he's prepared to see those things. 
I go out and look at the night sky, and I see a couple constellations, but I know some friends that could take you out and could tell you all kinds of stories about those stars and the constellations. Why? Because they've been prepared to see the sky. So we see what we're prepared to see, okay? And the person who is pure in heart is prepared to see God and understand God for who he is. The person who's not pure in heart will do what they do on the phone line to me all the time, blame God and criticize God and tell how God should do this and how, you know, I end up telling them this. You know, this is God's universe and he does things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have any universe. <laughs> That's sort of a sarcastic statement, isn't it? Anyway, the reason they don't understand God is because they have their own sins they're trying to rationalize. They have their own perverted ideas and they can't see God for who he is. It's a little bit like my relationship with my dad. My dad was very strict. We grew up in a church that was headed fast toward the world and finally ended up there. And if you go there, they, they've gone the whole way, totally acculturated. Uh, they still love Jesus, by the way. But anyway, that's what happened. Yes. I'm supposed to stand here. Thank you. I'm trying to be poor in spirit. <laughs> anyway. So my dad was really strict. We were the, one of two families, I think, in the whole church that did not use the radio. And the way that impacted me is, and I'm not saying what you should do about that issue. I'm only telling you my experience. All the other boys had radios in their cars. So uh, when my dad bought the car that I drove, well, they took the radio out. And so I had a hole in the dash. I didn't even have a plate to put over it. I had a hole in the dash. That was my first car. And nobody wanted to ride with me because I didn't have music in my car. Everybody else did. But on my birthday, I came in from the barn, and on my chair was a large package, and on my plate was a small package. The large package was a little Sony tape recorder, and the small package was a converter that you plugged in the cigarette lighter so you had 120 volts of alternating current to run the little recorder. That was in the days before the 8-track. That was in the days before the cassettes. That was in the days before any of that. Uh, but that's how my dad, he had gone and done some research. He found out that year they made this little Sony recorded with a speaker in the back so I could put it against the front seat and the music came out the back. He had it all figured out and he bought that for me. And then I had the best music and everybody wanted to ride with me. You know what it cost my dad to buy those? This is back in 1964. $100 for the recorder, $50 for the converter. $150, multiply that by at least 15 to get that in today's money. And my dad was not rich. And I all of a sudden began to see my dad for who he was. If he took something from me, it was only because he wanted to give me something better. Revolution. I saw my dad altogether differently because I, I came to some realization about myself and about him. And that's what it's saying. Blessed are the pure in heart, because I talk to these people who call me on the phone, I think, you, you don't understand God. You don't understand him. You're saying things that are ignorant. They can't see him because of the sin in their own heart that they're trying to come to terms with, and he's to fault and circumstances, and everybody's to blame for their problems. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We don't see our own selfishness and sin. 
John Bunyan, one time after he preached a sermon, a parishioner came to him and was flattering him for his sermon. And John Bunyan said, you don't need to say a word to me. The devil already told me how wonderful my sermon was. And I was beginning to become proud. Or the story is told of the pastor who got a promotion to a larger church. So he preached his last sermon to the little church where he was. And the people were coming afterward uh, to say how sad they were going to be that he was leaving. And they were going to miss him and all that nice stuff that you say to people. And uh, the last people that came were two old ladies, and they were sobbing their hearts out. And he just figured that they, they were sad because he was leaving. So he said to them, he said, oh, you don't have to worry. Uh, the next preacher, I'm sure, will be better. And they said, that's the problem. They always say that, but they keep getting worse and worse. <laughs> but see, that's us. That's, that's why we don't see God because we have those kinds of things in our hearts. All right. It's a single desire to please God, the pure in heart. Something that's pure has nothing mixed with it. It's pure water. There's no minerals or no pathogens, nothing. It's pure H2O. And a person who's gotten to that place with his own heart will see God for who he truly is and will love him and be devoted to him. What does it mean to please God? I'm going to close with this. What does it mean to please God? Is there a difference between obeying and pleasing? How many think there's a difference between those two? Uh-huh. If I go to town and I say to my children, I want you to straighten up your rooms, I want the dishes washed, and I want this house swept until I come home. And I come home and that's all done. They've obeyed me. But if one of them said while I was in town, I heard dad say that the garden needs weeding, and it's a hot day, I hate weeding, but I'm going to do it. Dad didn't say that I was to do it, but I'm going to do it because I really want to see that smile on Dad's face when he comes home. Now, that's pleasing. And many people are just giving grudging obedience to God. Oh, do I have to forgive this person? Oh, do I have to give this money? Do I have to? The person who's pleasing God is delighted to do it. In fact, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. Do you know what the word for cheerful is in that passage? It's the word that we get hilarious from. God loves a hilarious giver. When the offering basket is passed, we should hear chuckles all up and down the pews. We please God when we do things wholeheartedly just because we know it will bless God. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Now we're talking about pleasing, not just obeying. So, this is the path to perfection. A passion for piety hunger and thirst after righteousness, a propensity for pity, a passion for mercy, and a passion for purity. I would like to sing that song we just looked at, 800, or what was it? Um, four, 697 in closing. <clears throat> and then we will have a prayer and you'll be dismissed. 697. <clears throat>
Now, I'm not going to give any altar calls. I don't think I will do that. I would like for you to take what we talk about, go home, search your heart, make your commitment, make it genuine, not under pressure, and, and make some progress in these characteristics that we're talking about tonight. Uh, I, I think uh, the uh, poor in spirit gives way to mourning, which gives way to a, a, an awareness of our own sins, so we're gentle with other people. I think each one gives way to the next, and I think after we're born again, they keep recycling and getting better and better, building on each other. These become stronger and stronger as we go through life. And so ask yourself, do I have the evidence that the new birth is actually doing its work in my life because these qualities are becoming stronger and stronger and stronger in my experience by God's grace? And I did want to say a word about grace. <clears throat> this all does take grace. And there are a lot of people that misunderstand grace. If you'll pardon me for just a minute or two to explain grace to you. <clears throat> the best definition for grace is... Ephesians 1, verse 3, it doesn't have the word grace in it. It says, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Some translations say in the heavenly realm. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. So picture the heavenly realm. Here it is where God is, okay? And in that heavenly realm are all his characteristics. Unlimited love, unlimited forgiveness, unlimited power, unlimited wisdom, unlimited everything. You may miss it's unlimited. It's God has all that here. And we've all seen the acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. There's grace, okay? That's a really nice little quote, but my question is, what are the riches? What is it that he has given to us? Well, I'm telling you, he's made all of this available to us through Christ, down to little people like us. Sorry, my neck doesn't fit too well there. <laughs> That's amazing when you think about it. My favorite verse of the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 9.8. Listen to this. God is able to make all grace abound. Somebody tell me what abound means. Yes? Ah means none or not. Ah moral means not moral. No bounds. No bounds. God is made, able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. Now, if John Martin wrote that, you'd say John has a really overactive imagination. But that's straight from the Bible. That is God's truth. He's able to make all of that be unlimited for our need so that we can, without any limits, produce good work. The things we were talking about tonight. So there's no excuse for us to say, well, it's just my personality, or you don't know my circumstances, or if you'd have grown up in the home I grew up, or whatever excuse we make, there are no excuses. God is able to make all grace abound toward us that we can do everything he's asked us to do and do it without limits. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you tonight for this wonderful grace, for the wonderful new birth that puts your very spirit, your supernatural, all-powerful spirit within us
and enables us to do everything you ask us to do and do it in a way that pleases you. And Lord, forgive us for any excuses we make for anything less than that. And Lord, if, if any of us tonight need to repent and allow you to do a special work in some area of our life, Lord, make that clear to us and help us to allow you to do that in our lives. I pray, Lord, as a result of this study, we all may find ourselves more Christ-like, not just in theory, but in actual practice in our homes and in our relationships at work and all the other relationships we have. And oh God, I pray that this church will be able to work through whatever difficulties it has and they will come together in a beautiful unity of selflessness and uh, unity that demonstrates something to the world that is just beyond humanity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.